Welcome to One Man's Ethos. Today, Tony welcomes Harrison Bernstein, author and president and founder of Soldiers to Sidelines. For more information on Harrison, please visit soldierstosidelines.org. This is One Man's Ethos, the Tony Mandarich Podcast. My, I have one of those too. I think it's kind of cool. It might say like preview copy or something. Yeah, yeah. My author copies, my final copies should be here kind of soon. Okay. Let's see. Oh, yeah. See, so it has that little oh, band that looks on good. it. That looks clean. Yeah. So mine was cool. like mine, which is upstairs, is literally like someone stamped right here, preview copy only, like the uh, publisher. How come I don't have a copy of your book? Why don't you? Because I need to get you one, that's why. <laughs> and like, I have one coming for you. I just ordered 300 of these. Um, yeah, but you have to autograph it for me. No doubt. It's one of the potentially could have been greatest linemen in the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But was it? Yeah, we're that, all that looks good. Could have been. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, yeah, perfect. And I've got the. Uh, yeah. That looks good. I like it. It's clean. I think it's pretty cool. Matt Brown wrote that forward. The forward. I saw read it in the yeah. PDF that you sent me. Uh, that's awesome. Um, so, what, 12 months ago we met? Yeah. Up here. And um, and then, yeah, like I had stated in other podcasts, I mean, like we talked about earlier, after hearing it from you, just in talking about doing a podcast i was like screw it i was like he went to johns hopkins he must know something <laughs> so i'm doing it <laughs> i saw it actually this morning on the tv i don't know what was going by but they were showing it was probably they were showing numbers of covid or something but it was just like a, a news station or something and um it, you know, information provided by John Hopkins. I just, I always laugh when I'm like, I know somebody from John Hopkins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we had a lot of smart people there for sure. I wasn't one of them. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, it didn't say presented by Johns Hopkins football. <laughs> you were still there. Yeah. You were still there. And and I say that tongue in cheek. We, you know, know. My, my football team probably has more surgeons on it than any other football right. team. I always joke about, the, you know, I'm that bitter rival of U of M and, and, U of M produces what? Doctors, lawyers, engineers. University of Michigan. Michigan State, agriculture, veterinary, and I think that they've become very uh, known, I think, for psychology, mm. uh, which is way after I was there. But um, they were probably like, let's study his psyche. <laughs> but um, so I always joke that I say someday I'll probably be on an operating room table with a U of M doctor doing surgery. Hopefully he won't know that I went to state. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He'll like throw a couple of rocks. In well, there. you're better off being at Michigan State than Ohio State. If you have a, I, you agreed. <laughs> agreed. And you know the story of Ohio State and me. Um, that I, you have told it before. Yeah, and it's just, I really wanted to go there. They were at that time of, you know, graduating high school or, or being, you know, junior, senior high school, that's the place I wanted to go. 
and they were just like, uh, it was Earl Bruce and they were like, they were, they were polite about it, but they were like, we just don't have room for you. Yeah. To have you don't have a scholarship, which was a nice way of saying, okay, you know, you're not good enough, or we don't think you're good enough to play on our team. And I was kind of bummed out, and um, you know, went to U of M for a visit, went to Michigan State for a visit. I knew I would not fit U of M. Um, and 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 honestly, it wasn't the academics. It was just like it's just it was just one of those things. I mean, U of M is a great institution. Yeah. Right? It's a great school, obviously. I mean, but the guy telling me, the, the scout, or the, yeah, the scout telling me stuff to try to impress me, like, do you know that U of M is one of the only schools in the country that has a flag on the moon, like literally yeah. right now? And I'm like, I really don't give a fuck for one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, what does that have to do with me playing right. tackle? <laughs> right? But I get it too. You know, I understand what they're trying to do. And when I went to Michigan State, it was like I was home. As soon as I started meeting people, it was like I was home. And that's really important, I think, for athletes who are getting recruited to understand, you know, it's those are the feelings you have to trust. Yeah. Because, you know, you can't select a school based on the coach that you think you're going to play for. It was different when you were in college because oh, yeah. there was way more stability in the coaching yeah. staff. But now it's just there's so much turnover either – the administration fires the coaches or, you know, they're just moving to the next job to right. further their own career. Right. So for a young student athlete to select a school based on the coach, I, I think it's a little bit short-sighted. I think it's more of like, what what do you want out of life more than football? Right. And how does it make you feel? Because that's right. the environment you're right. going to be in for the next Every week. day, right. Every day you're going to be in that environment and going, you know, going to class, practice, all the guys. And, and you get a... A feel for the what the guys are like because you you know you have a host who's a player that's already there and stuff so you get a vibe of what the guys are like and they were a, a little bit more blue collar not a ton more that doesn't mean that the guys at the other school didn't work hard of course they worked hard they fit Mike like I fit in their blue collar system better than I fit in I'd say uh, maybe a little bit more refined I don't know if it was refined is the right word but it, and, and and whatever semantics I want to use it didn't feel right in yeah. Ann Arbor and that doesn't make Ann Arbor a bad school exactly and then the flip side of that you said you know Ohio State didn't select you because you thought you might not they were polite and saying you're not good enough but that's not necessarily the case either that's right. true so that was in my head right and in my head the next line was boy you're going to pay for that <laughs> and they, I'm sure they did you <laughs> know did. A couple sure times. And so, um, but that's another thing I th for athletes who might be listening to this or parents of athletes who might be listening to this, you know, at some point it becomes a numbers game, yeah. right? So it's your, as a recruit, you're competing against everybody else that they're bringing to the fold. Right. And, you know, Ohio State or whatever prospective college, they're, they're trying to select athletes that fit their culture too. Right. So it's not just ability and it's like who's available. Right. So just because you might not get a scholarship offer or get accepted to the school that you think you want to go to, that's an opportunity for you to wind up in the place that you're supposed to be. Yeah. And like, I think just it's very important for people to trust that. And, you know, back to making your decisions as a student athlete. Not making decisions based on the coach, 
really trusting your gut like you did, right, in, in the feeling. And if you do that, I think those kinds of athletes will stay mm-hmm. with the college longer. Because right now there's this huge trend where everyone's getting into the transfer portal, yeah. right? And I think young athletes are really missing out by doing that because there's a lot to be said and learned from paying your dues, sticking it out, displaying loyalty, and just working hard. And if you think that the school or the the sports program you're playing for is your stepping stone to the pros, by you changing school or team, I think it hurts you. Yeah, I agree. Usually I would say way in the majority it's not going to help you. It does at in certain unique circumstances. The first one that comes to mind is for me personally is Aikman, because he was at Oklahoma, right? Mm-hmm. And they were a wishbone running team under Switzer, and then he transferred to UCLA, <laughs> which was pretty good at the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he left because he wasn't fitting into the offense. I believe that was the reason he left. It could have been other reasons, but so like that obviously worked out for him because he ended up having a great career in, in, in college and in the pros. and uh, But those are the uh, minority of the Absolutely. Like cases. another great uh, instance is Jalen Hurts, mm. right? Because he was yeah. going to lose his position to Tua. Right. Both those quarterbacks are now in the NFL. Pretty good, But yeah. he wanted to get play his senior year, and he went to another excellent university yeah. Yeah. Where he was going to be given that shot, but Jalen was already going to the NFL, right, even regardless. as a junior, right? So, for him to go to a place where he could play, like he was already on the fast track to the NFL. Right. If you're a sophomore right. or a junior and you're not really right. starting, and you right. think it's going to be somewhere else, I just and it's different. I think if you're in a JUCO going to a bigger college, like if you, that's totally different. That's totally different. Totally different. But right? yeah, you're trying major to major college to major college is is. I don't think in someone's benefit, unless the you know circumstances are so bad where you're at. Um, but even still, right? Then it becomes perspective. Y- yeah. There's so much to be yeah. said for sticking it out oh, man, I, and paying your I dues. Can't. Yeah, you nailed that. It's true. Plus, you know what? Four and five for me, it was five years because I got redshirted. But those years of camaraderie. Now, granted, you're getting probably 30 new players coming in and 30 leaving every year from graduating and then new recruits coming in. But you are you come in with your class. And I was lucky enough to come in with guys that were just phenomenal athletes, like Andre Rise and like Lorenzo White. I mean, it was like the list could go on that all went on to play into the NFL. Um, but sticking it out, like stuff at Michigan State, there was, there was tough stuff that was very tough. Like never did I ever even consider transferring. Um, but I was like, you know what? There's, there's really no easy route. Like, or, or easier route. It's like, as I get older, obviously hindsight's great. But as you get older, you start to realize there is no easy way. There's the just do your work kind of stuff. Do what's in front of you. Do it smartly. Do it most efficiently. But you're still going to have to do it no matter where you're at. And, yeah, I mean, one of the main, I mean, a couple of the main reasons I went to state, one of them being George Perlow's, the head coach. I mean, he had four Super Bowl rings with Pittsburgh in the 70s. And then when Daryl Rogers got fired at State and George took the job, I was his second class ever. And 
he was like, I mean, I, you know, I grew up, I'm not a Steelers fan now. I mean, I don't know what despise them or anything, but they were like, they were uh, Philly and Pittsburgh were my two teams. And, uh, I was like, okay, if I want to get to the next level in my head, I'm thinking if I want to get to the next level, I'm going to try to give myself the best opportunity. So I took things into consideration like the coach. Okay. Well, he probably knows what he's doing. He's got four Super Bowl rings. Was in the NFL for over 10 years. From Detroit, hardcore blue collar, old school, which is right up my alley. Um, I believe if it wasn't his parents, it was his grandparents were immigrants. My parents were immigrants. So there was a thing there. You know, I'll tell you a quick funny story. The day I got dropped off my freshman year at camp, um, <clears throat> and George had, you know, obviously met my parents and stuff, and Nick. Saban had met my parents because they had come to Canada. So they're dropping me off and um, coach definitely want, like wants to see all the parents. Like, you know, individually. Because uh, yeah. people were getting, kids were getting dropped off, you know, throughout the day. And and we're like six weeks before school starts or whatever, four weeks before school starts. And I remember, <laughs> I got so embarrassed. The last thing my dad said to George was, you make sure that he goes to church on Sundays, right? And George was like, oh, I'll guarantee you he doesn't. I was like, I'm here to play football, man. Yeah. But it was like, it was just that mentality. Looking back, that's not a bad thing. Like, that's not a bad thing to have that, you know, some kind of a, that foundation in your life of, you know, like for, for my dad was referring to church. George being from Detroit and hardcore, you know, kind of like, I think he went to a, I think he went to a Catholic high school, um, but it doesn't matter if it's Catholic or Christian or Lutheran. It doesn't matter what it is um, to have that foundation base at, at 18 years old. You think, you know, you're bulletproof. And as you get older, you start to be like talking to, you know, yeah. the God of your understanding, realizing that you're not bulletproof. And I wish, you know, I don't know if times are going to go back to that. So when I hear that story, though, in the 80s and 90s, coaches stuck around. There was more longevity and stability for the coaching staff. And yeah. that guy got there. You were his second class. Yeah. So the, the likelihood that George Perlis was going to be there for the next six, eight years was, was, good. was a really good yeah. shot of that, yeah. right? So in that situation, that, that's a, a good uh, basis to make that decision, right. and especially at that time. It's yeah. just times have changed Big so time. much right now. I hope it goes back to that at some point. Mm, that might just be a, a pipe dream, though. And here's the here's the crazy thing about four about five years ago. I went back. Uh, it was and it was January. No, it was uh, late December going into January because they were getting ready for a bowl game, um, but the, all the players had gone home. Uh, for like a couple of days, probably before they were leaving for wherever. But I stopped by the football building anyways at Michigan State because uh, I knew somebody would be there. And there was still probably, I'd say, maybe 30% of the people in the front office or like equipment guys that were there when I was there. So the head equipment guy, Bob Eckerbacher, he took the job there the year before I got there. So he literally came in with George. Um, and he was the head equipment guy all the way until I want to say two years ago. So when I went back, I saw Bob and Bob was always great to me. And 
man, it was like pulling teeth to get a pair of glo- like just gloves, right, for practice because they would rip so easy back mm-hmm. then. Remember, they had like those Newman the gloves. Newman's, yeah, <laughs> it's and like you put them on, and they're starting to tear, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let alone going against the whole practice. We had to spray them with the the skin, the, yeah, the, the skin stuff, yeah, to make them, to make them tacky. Yep, yeah. Yep. So we talked, caught up. It was it was like it was it was just incredible. It was like going back in time, and it was great because we talked about a lot of the same stuff. Then I asked him because just because I was interested, I said, like obviously things have changed. But like, how much has changed? What's the biggest change you notice? And he said, "You." He goes, "You are not going to believe what I tell you." Like, and he's not there anymore now. And, and he's not saying anything bad because it, it's not a Michigan State thing. I think it. I think the cause of it was Oregon, and I think the cause of it was Nike. One of the biggest questions recruits ask when they come in is, "How many different helmets and uniforms are we wearing this season?" Yeah. And I was like, "You got to be kidding me!" Yeah. Because you know how they wear like, well, they wear a special color of, yeah. of or tone of the color of the school. Yeah. And I remember Oregon about 20 years ago started doing that, 15 years ago, because yeah. Nike was right there and they were yeah. sponsoring everything. Every week, they looked like a different team, like dress-wise. Yeah. And it was it was kind of cool, but then they started doing like kind of like the chromey, shiny helmets and all this. And I'm glad I wasn't in, in that era. Um, we had the old school rule, which was, you wear your dark colors at home, and on the road you wear your white colors. If, unless that home team chooses to wear their white colors. Yeah. So if we went down to Miami, like in the pros, it would be the same thing kind of. Yeah. If we went down to Miami, obviously it's hot as heck in September, they would wear their whites, and you know we'd be wearing our dark green and green, <laughs> and that heat would just be soaking it up. So in that way, they would use that to their advantage, but there was only two uniforms. And there was only one helmet, and there was only one like color of pants. Yeah, it was white with a you know big green stripe. Now they have green with the stripe. Now they have green with like the sparty going down the side. Now that it's all these things, and he's like, that's one of the most important. Like that's one of the kids' priorities, like recruiting class priorities. And he's like, it's not just Michigan State; it's all over the country. It's all over, and yeah, we could we could talk about this subject. I think for crazy. five hours. It's um, crazy and. You know, when you're a young kid, that's what you're seeing on TV, and, yep. and that kind of stuff matters to you. Just right. think about if we could go back into our teenage self, like what mattered to us, right? And this is the first time where, you know, those kids are leveling up in their fame. So they have their local yeah. celebrity, which is now getting more exposure because of social media. Right. But oh, now yeah. they're getting to yeah. level up. So yeah. at some point, they're not really not. A lot of them aren't really into football per se. Right. It's the celebrity that football can afford them. Right. And that side effect. That side effect, right? right? And so it now it's like keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah. And you have to be you have to be really confident in who you are to stay traditional, yeah. like in Alabama. Uh, like U of M and Ohio State, oh, they just don't change it. No. And I adore that. Like I'm I like a romantic when it comes to like the old school and like to me just stick with the old I love ways. That. Like yeah. Even the Colts, right? Yeah. Like Colts, like I don't think they've changed their uniform. Maybe they've had like a when they've had like a, you know, I think a few years back they had some some big anniversary. It was like a twenty five or fifty or whatever year anniversary. So they like for one game wore something, or they wore a patch on yeah. the jersey, and then it was just for that game. 
And I, but I also know the NFL rules of, as you do, <laughs> the dress code of NFL rules on the oh. field is strict or you get fined. I oh, get yeah. fined 20, like a thousand bucks, 2,500 bucks for not having my socks pulled all the way up. And I didn't look like in uniform during the game. And it's like, my legs are hot. <laughs> I don't have to pull my socks out. Or if your jersey wasn't tucked in. The funniest story about that is, I, I love it when Greg Williams tells this story, but it's, it's so true. We were coaching for the Redskins. I was a strength and conditioning coach at the time. And uh, Sean Taylor is on uh, is on the team. And boy, man, he's he might be one of the, the he might be the best athlete I've ever coached really? in my life. Oh, he, he was just. I know he brought it, man. He was innate. Ooh. Like there was just this instinctual thing about right. it. But, but part of that too, what made him so good is he was such a loner. Right. Really uh, soft-spoken. You wouldn't think so, but right. like to himself, very smart. Like he, he's very reflective. Okay, right? yeah. Um, but wanted to do things like his way. And that was one of the ways I think that I was able to connect with him. Right. Was, you know, I'm not going to tell this guy what to do. Just right. like, let's do this together right. and have him guide me. And then I will facilitate ideas that right. he may or may not right. choose to employ. Right. So anyway, so, so that's his mindset. Well, he wasn't feeling the fines. <laughs> And because he was coach, making so much money, well, but he he was an individual, like oh, he right, he didn't the, care. He, he didn't care about right? that. Min, now, minute. Coach Williams, who loves him, is also a, a traditionalist right. in making sure that we stay uniform right. to the team code right. and all right. this stuff, you know. Yeah. And um, on the defense, Greg was like, you know, you're going to get fined. I don't care. It doesn't matter. I'm saying it's the end. You have to. You have to do this. No more tape all over your, you right. know, like on your body and right. places it's not supposed to be. Right. It's got to get sanctioned because he was like writing on the tape. And all right, right, stuff. right. So Sean Taylor, the next game, he comes out and he took little strands of tape and taped it all over his face mask, like little rolls. So there was like 50 tape all over his face mask, around every single joint, all over his fingers. Like he just taped himself all up and just took the fines. <laughs> You know, and, and at that point, like Coach Williams was like, He's like what are you son doing? of a bitch. Right. What do you do? Right. Like, yeah. But then he goes out there and plays out of his Crushes mind. It, yeah. And, you know, you're and like, then it's like, as a coach, it's like, what do you do? Right. But then, but there's also like, look, if you're willing to eat them, if you're willing to eat the fine, the fine. Yeah. You know, as long as you know the consequences and you're willing to pay it, have at it. I think it's stupid. I do too. But it's. And uh, I did a lot of it. You know, <laughs> and it's like, that's why you realize it's like, yeah, you want to be your own individual and stuff, but you got to. <clears throat> respect the rules of the game and you got to respect your other teammates and you got to respect you know the, the NFL was built on the shoulders of men long before I was there but you know what's so funny that act somehow brought those two guys closer together I believe coach it. williams you know because I it was it. almost like it came to all right, right. I see yeah. <laughs> no but it was cuz it was so over the top and ridiculous you know it was like come on it was man. like you're not the boss <laughs> yeah <laughs> although he is yeah but he's the only guy that can simultaneously uh, come down as an inserted safety, cover somebody in the flat, and then double back and pick off the deep over 18 yards behind them. Those are some things Incredible. that just... Not very many people can do. I've never seen it done besides yeah. him. So The crazy thing, and it reminds me of like what Dion would do, he could cover, like he could close a space so fast to let the quarterback think the receiver was open. And actually, technically, the receiver is open. Yeah. But he would close that gap so fast because he was such a great athlete. And in also not just physically, but in anticipation. Um, man, he had so many picks because of that. Or, or you know, batted down balls and, and 
he I always say he glided across the field. He didn't run. <laughs> I mean, the guy was incredible. Yeah, that's how that's how Sean was. Man, and then when you just... we, last time I think you said you, when you worked with Santana Moss, was it Santana Moss the receiver that you? Yeah, he was yeah, on that team too. Yeah, just like the ridiculousness of his abilities, and it's like once you're surrounded by all those guys, you start to get used to it, right? Whether you're a coach or a player, you yeah. start to get used to it, and you expect it. You do, but I, you, there's there's times <laughs> though those guys will check you like. You know, so I, I was a young coach, you know, so we were probably the You're same age. Like, I was like the same age as the players, like right. just maybe a couple years right. older, right? And right. Uh, so, you know, I, I was fast, you know, but, I mean, they're, they're world-class. Oh, people, yeah. And there's a huge difference, right? Yeah. And so there's a bunch of folks that are fast, so right. I, I could run a, you know, a high 4-4, four, four, right. right? You right. know, right? Which but is they, screaming. Yeah, but, you know, it was, but it's just so, right. like, like Sean Taylor and Satana Moss, those guys are... That, that's a jog. I'm just going to be honest. That's a jog. And there's times, I, so I would run hundreds and forties with them just to pace them to make right. sure like, look, if you stay with me, you're going to make all your times right. and then you're not going to blow anything out right. either. Right? Right, right, right. And I just remember this one time, you know, just running with Santana and Santana just decided like, I'm going to show, I'm going to show you these other gears. And he, he just like pulled and in, in about, what was probably a quarter of a second, maybe a half a second, in my head felt like 30 minutes, <laughs> and I was completely helpless. And he was like, what, five, like 10 like, yards ahead of you? You know how like, sometimes you say, yeah, 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 yeah. If, I, if I just try harder and run harder, yeah. I can catch, no, like zero. Yeah. Like I had zero. You were already shot. at that point of... No, just quit. Everything I... Oh. <laughs> like there's no <laughs> point in taking hopeless. another step. It's like in less than a quarter of a second, you go from... In the race to no, just go right. take your stuff and You're go in home. the stands, <laughs> and and you can feel the pressure of him Incredible. separating at the time. It's like Incredible. wow, yeah. and there's a I have a lot of appreciation for that. Yeah, you know, and yeah. if if you've never if you're into running and you've never ran next to that kind of speed, right. it's just it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. I I mean, I was lucky enough to watch Barry Sanders play because we were in the same division, and. As a, as a, you know, being on offense, obviously, when he was on the field, we were not on the field. Our defense was on the field, but it was interesting because like half of our offense, after we got the corrections from the last series from the line coach or the coordinator or whatever, and we kind of knew we get in our Gatorade or, or water or whatever, we'd all stand up on the sideline and start watch because we wanted to watch Barry run. Yeah, and and you know what, most of the NFL did that. It was crazy. It, it was almost like. You'd hear like those tales of, hey, yeah, you're going to L.A. Well, back then it was the Raiders and, and where you'd go to Miami like and they have these just beautiful cheerleaders and stuff. And you'd be like, hey, we're going to this place. You know, the cheerleaders are beautiful. And they'll be just down, you know, we, you know, you can look at them or whatever. It's like it didn't matter what kind of cheerleaders they were. If Barry was on the field right? or somebody that was yeah. incredible. And for me, it was like I always want to say I was like starstruck by people like Montana. Right, because yeah. I literally grew up watching him. I I literally watched what they called the throw. I think they called it the yeah. throw to Dwight Clark for the touchdown to yeah. take him into the Super Bowl, beating Dallas. Like I watched that happen, like on TV. Yeah, when it happened. Yeah, and it's like, and then and then you know, eight, nine, ten years later, you're playing against him, even though he's the quarterback on offense on the other team. You're sitting there going. That is the guy, and that's the part of Candlestick Park where it happened. And, and, and you know, I'm like 22, 23 years old, and I'm going, this is like surreal. 
That is surreal. It's crazy. It's I'm, you know, you know how many folks are feeling that same thing tonight, playing with or against Tom Brady. I mean, he's oh, just been in the yeah. league for so long that yeah. he's probably he's got classes of people yeah. that yeah. feel that yeah. way. Yeah, uh, and it's so true that you say that. Where even professionals, there's like this respect for everyone else's ability, and sometimes when you're in your own body you don't realize how good you are actually like there's like no i, I know exactly what like you're everybody saying. like everybody feels confident right like you see right. this this confidence in their ability but when you when you watch it happen out on the field it's like do i look like that right and so i had another tremendous athlete and, and dear friend of mine is a guy named um, Sean Springs, oh, yeah. uh, who's got a pretty good he's business right guy, now. He's an Ohio State guy, isn't he? He's Ohio yeah. State yeah. guy, right? And yeah. he was one of the, I think oh, he was phenomenal. drafted too, yeah. right? As a defensive player yeah. coming out, of, right? So anyway, we would, you know, all, all the training and stuff we, we used to do, and he's so fast, and he could jump so high. Like right. there's certain things, like he would like turn it on, you're like, right. okay, that's, that's a little bit different. Right. <laughs> You know, he tells a story actually. While I was trying to get, he, he was like renegotiating his contract, and it was like, "We're the we're at the time the Washington Redskins, right. now the football team. We're gonna keep him or not?" And you know, they were questioning his ability to come back from this injury, right? So I was like, "Okay, come come out to the facility. I'm gonna do a private workout with you." Mm-hmm. And then I had like the defensive coaches up in the facility looking over the field, watch the thing. I was like, "Guys, you'll just just see." Right. So we wanted to. I was like, I'm gonna showcase his speed right now. And I didn't want him to just like run with a watch. Right. So we're doing defensive back drills and I have him do a uh, back pedal and break onto a post. And I was like, go hawk this deep ball down. So I'm like, I'm gonna make this a little bit impressive. So we do it. He's in his back pedal before he breaks. I throw this football, probably the best football I've ever thrown in my life. <laughs> it goes about 55 yards, like tight spiral. It. I sling this thing. I swear to God, it was like 55 yards in the air. This dude starts his breaks, hawks this thing down, jumps up, boom, Both high right. points it, comes down. I was like, oh shit. Right. And I think every, like, even I was like, I, right. And then, every, and then he went and signed. It's incredible. And then it was like, yeah, That's he's incredible. good. That stuff's incredible. It's incredible. Like you start to see, boom, yeah. we'd be jumping. And it was like, okay, we're going to do these box jumps. And we start st- stacking them up. So now I get them like 60 inches high. I mean, this is like. Oh, a, my God. Yeah. So, I, that's tall. Yeah. yeah. That's so high, it's almost yeah. like a six foot yeah, person. Yeah. Like no step. He's just like. Just right like on. with both. Like not a step up. Just. Just, base, just standing. Base, yeah. Boom. And you're like, all right, I think we're done yeah, here. There's some explosion there. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good explosive there. Uh, we can move on to the next drill. <laughs> yeah, that was enough. You're good. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's been a lot of people like that. And there's and there's still, I mean, there still is. It's just it's different. When oh, I, but the point I wanted to make though, sorry to cut you off, Tony, yeah. was even with all that being said, in between series, right, like they like our offense would be out there, and sometimes Sean on sidelines be like, these guys are fast. Do I look like that? Like, do, do yeah. I, can I run like, I'm it's like, out of perspective. yeah, you just yeah. did. Yeah. Um, right. Like you just hawked that guy down across the field. He's like, yeah, but do I look like that? Yeah, no, you you're do. better. Yeah, yeah, you're good. You're faster. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Because he doesn't feel it because he's right. internalized. He he's is just it. running. Right. But he doesn't know. Like, he's like, man, those yeah. guys look fast. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah th- dude, that's you. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a it's a it's an interesting kind of I don't even want to say it's a phenomenon, but it's an interesting perspective because you get used to you. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're always, I mean, we're always setting our standards higher and higher and higher to reach them. I mean, you know, sometimes I'll set them so high that sometimes I'm even like, is it attainable? And I'm like, well, there's only one way to find out is to set it that high because I don't want to easily attain my goal. I want to, because I, I love the process, right? I love the process and the, you know, day after day, month after month, year after year of continual improvement. And being like, and then when you do do it and you look back and you, then I ask myself, was it worth it? It doesn't have to be anything to do with monetary. It could be anything in life. And I'm like, was it worth it? And, you know, most of the time it's like, yeah, because quickly or, or, or very briefly into something, I will find out if I really am into this or not. You know, yeah. if I really want to do this or not. And if I don't want to do it, you know, there's red, there'll be, for me, there's red flags everywhere of, of not wanting to do something because my heart's not in it. My, one of my biggest barometers, measuring barometers, and it just came to be, it's not like I said, this will be my measuring barometer, is I lose track of time. If I'm doing something I love, I lose track of time. And that's like with photography. Uh, like I'll be shooting, I'll do a lot of test shoots just experimenting light and and just getting creative with stuff and you know what a lot of them are bombs they're just it's like that doesn't work but you learn that that doesn't work for this we might work in a different kind of genre of setting or 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 a corporate setting or something else but you learn from that and that goes back to that thomas that old thomas edison thing if i know you know 10,000 ways on or 100,000 ways not to make a light bulb right yeah yeah (laughs) so and that's really, as far as, I mean, I'm using it metaphorically, but literally it's like, that's exactly what it is. It's like, I know that what I thought this was going to produce with light and shadow is not doing it. So then I ask why, you know, I'll leave everything constant, but only change one thing. Cause if I start changing multiple things at the same time and then it works, it's like, I don't know which one I did that changed it that worked. Okay. But granted it works. So then, you know, kind of record this down, write it down, make sure that you know it, but I want to know why it works or what did I do to change it? So I'll like, I'll leave the camera settings the same. I'll leave the power on the light the same. And then I'll mess with the modifier, make it bigger or a smaller modifier, or I'll use distance to pull the modifier away, whether it's a softbox or an umbrella or whatever the case may be. And if I don't do that, if I leave that constant, then, you know, like, in, and I'm obviously speaking in photography stuff, I'll change something in the camera. But usually what I dictate in the camera is what I want in my head for it to look like or, or for it to end up creatively like. So if I want a shallow depth of field, I know I want to shoot at a, a smaller aperture, like 4.0 or 2.8. Um, if I, like, so that's why those settings for me will stay constant. And I'll just make the process so if I can change the distance of the light, I can change the modifier, take the test shot, do it again, take the test shot. So sometimes I'm like, man, I've been doing this for like two hours. And it's like, well, I started at two o'clock and it's two o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. But I figured out what didn't work and I figured out what did work. And that is like 12 hours invested that is like well invested, right? And the subject that I'm shooting is somebody trying to learn, you know, modeling, whether it's a male or female or not, not to become this big professional model, but just to become better at what they do and they want to do and they have an interest in it. So they learn, I learn, 
And it's like, we lose track of time. And then before you know it, it's like 10, 12 hours later. And you're like, whoa. Yeah. You know, and that, and that, and that goes across the board for everything. Football, running, lifting. Like lifting in the weight room, it's like home. Well, it's everything. And this is this concept is going to circle back to uh, recruiting and the transfer portal and that discussion we had. And when I hear you talk, I hear three things. I hear the concept of flow. I hear persistence. And I hear value. And really... The value of anything is solely determined by how much you were you sacrificed to get it. So the value yeah. of anything is determined by how much you sacrificed to get it. So that 12 hour shoot, you were persistent. Mm -hmm. you, you know, when it wasn't working, got to find another way, right. stuck with it over and over and over again. So right. the end product, you're going to be extremely proud of because you just yes. invested. Yes. You sacrificed so much yes. to get it. Right. And think about back to the transfer portal. Right. right. Things are going to be tough. You speak so fondly of your time at Michigan State. I speak so fondly of my time at Johns Hopkins yeah. University. But, you know, my time at Johns Hopkins was rocky as all heck. <laughs> I mean, I almost got kicked out, failed out, like all of this stuff. <laughs> I'm glad mine was smooth. <laughs> I mean, no, mine it just, wasn't. It was... even so... I, there's no way it was smooth, right? right? Like there's always moments where yeah. you think, I mean, I know my freshman year, I, I wanted to transfer. Um, you know, I'm just young. I don't know what I'm, I, I just didn't know what I'm doing. And then it was so hard academically. But the reality was I wasn't giving it the effort that I needed to right. really. And I had to do, I had to just do much better. And I started to learn that like my junior year, I stayed with it. I didn't transfer. I went to Johns Hopkins in the first place because for me, I wanted to go to the best academic school I could possibly get into mm -hmm. and play football as much as possible. Right. So at Johns Hopkins being Division three afforded both those things. I mean, it's top 10 in the country yeah. Yeah. academically. And so I was, okay, I outkicked my coverage academically. Like that was very, very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, and a lot of my buddies felt the same way. But we persevered and we put in this effort over time and just figured out a way to do right. it and so now i look back on those four years that right. i grinded that out finally right. and i had success on the football field right. and even still like the trials and tribulations i had with my my position coach who was our defensive coordinator and he recruited me right when and he was there all four years and my head coach was there my head coach played football at johns hopkins his name is jim margraff has recently passed at a young age and he's the most winningest coach in the state of Maryland. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he, 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 he's just... And at the time, I was too immature to really learn the wisdom that he was, he was spewing to me. But because I stuck with it, sometimes he gave me the tough love and would just yeah. like rip me, yeah. to, but to make sure that I stuck with it. Right. Now I can think back of how valuable True, my Johns Hopkins experience was, yeah. like beyond belief. Yeah. And I didn't realize it at the time, I realize it more now. Yeah. And there, the other word flow, there was moments in practice and games and sometimes, <laughs> sometimes in the classroom, <laughs> where things just became in a flow-like state, where you're right. just absorbed right. and everything's happening easy. Right. So, but that those states of flow only come from your desire to be persistent. And if you can stick it out, maybe experience some moments of flow, maybe not. In the end, it will be priceless. 
I totally agree. And and I almost and I almost think that uh, I mean ad- adversity is inevitable. Um, you know, severe severe adversity is not necessary. But adversity is inevitable in anything in life and on the field in the classroom doesn't matter what it is and then you know compounding all those dealing with it i'm dealing with it i'm dealing well, with think it. about this what is adversity discomfort kind of it's or so, not not the plan that i had right had put down or like on like for me it always put it on paper so okay this is an adversity or really most of my adversities now are speed bumps because i had some big adversities as we all have so I look, it puts things in perspective, but adversity to me is a discomfort of, of something not going the way I wanted it to or I planned it to. That's what it is. That's Anything it that's is. not what I planned or hoped right. it to be, so which then is I pretty ask much myself, everything. Right, right. So think about From this, the like, time why, are I'm we, yeah, why are we categorizing <laughs> adversity as something that happens to us when we right. live in a perpetual state of adversity? Of change, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. like that, that's what it is. So it, It's really, how do, what do we do about it? Or, or how do we improvise or, comp- or, or like adjust to it? Correct. Just that's, accept that's that it's it happening. Yeah. Yeah. This is real. Mm-hmm. This is happening. Yeah. Is this what I want right now? Right. No. Okay. Then now you can yeah. find a way to make through. And once you once you accept it, we all accept it, yeah. and just say this is what's what's happening. Yeah. Um, you you can. It becomes less difficult. It's not like I have oh, to yeah. carry this, cover this yeah. huge mountain. Yeah. Um, and I think it's huge when we when when I like when I had the realization that I felt that some of my problems were unique only to me. Yeah. And then, which is like narcissistic and ego based, right? And I'm like thinking as, you know, as life went on and I, you know, I cleaned up my act and stuff and I realized everybody's got the same problem. The semantics might be different, but the problem's the same. The emotional pain is the same or the joy is the same or whatever the case may be. And it's, I, I, I've always, you know, you use certain phrases in your own life just that you've, learn from somebody or that you've heard and that you like it you like the way it fits and i've always felt like i've always been like what are you going to do about it to myself mm-hmm. so then sometimes i'll say it to people and then i'll realize mm, that's not the way to deliver that you know i you know i'm like i should maybe say so what are the what are your options like you know and kind of massage it a little bit depending on the circumstance but for me i'm you know hard on myself and i'll be like what are you gonna do about it because yeah. you can go into the cave and tuck your tail if you want. Or you can grab the bull by the horns and make it happen. And when I say that, that's like, that doesn't mean like every day. Even going back to the example of a shooting that like 12 hours that to me felt like two hours. I'm sure there's people that think that I was probably like a raging, I need to figure out the mad scientist. I need to figure out the answer to this and this lighting and stuff. No, it was a pretty chill. It was a, it was a fun chill day it was like why isn't that working and we'd sit there we'd talk and and the model and i remember the, it was vincent this guy named vincent and he was like maybe if because and he's a very creative extremely creative guy he's not a photographer but he's a very creative guy and he goes he'd be like what about this or he'd say hey i did a shoot for so you know a commercial shoot for a company and um they had a setup where they did kind of, you know, this, this, and this. And sometimes I'd be like, yeah, but that's not what I'm looking for. Sometimes I'd be like, my God, I never even thought of that. And I would try it and we'd be like, work, right? So for, for any, I would like sometimes listen to myself and be like, I wonder if they think like I'm like the mad scientist running around changing lights and doing all this like, and doing it fast, right? And it's like, 
No, there's no reason to do it like fat. Do it efficiently and know the reasons why it doesn't work and know and try to figure out why it does work. And a lot, I have so many behind the scenes pictures that are just the setup. Yeah. And I will take that picture, I'll print it out like on a piece of uh, tech. Well, not necessarily, it doesn't have to be photo paper. It could literally just be like paper, paper, letter paper, enough to, you know, see everything clearly. And then I will take a pen because I will have taken a tape measure and measured how far is this light and what's the power? And I'll write that down on that because it, it's in a book I have. Yeah. And, and it's just kind of like a, and that book is like, you know, beat to death now, but it's got so much information for it for referring to. So, you know, you get to a point where you start to know certain fundamental stuff that you just know. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, but it's like, then there's certain great lighting setups that you don't use all the time. So you're like, how did I do that? Did I, so I just go back and refer to my little book that I kept notes in and I would have a, a, you know, picture of the setup, no model, no nothing. And have where the camera was. I would measure how high the camera was off the ground, what the settings were, everything. If it's studio, obviously it's easier because the conditions are hundred percent controlled. But then if it's a setup, I don't use all the time. I refer to it. And then I would also include on that page, if not on the backside of that page, the final image that I took of that person and, and it would be edited mm -hmm. and be like, okay, that will give me in the ballpark of this, depending on what I change. And I like this tone and mood or whatever the case may be, man, I can't tell you how much, like for me that I don't know as much as a lot of people, like you probably understand this stuff better than I do of how the brain learns. But for me, I learn way more visually mm -hmm. than, you know, audibly, but doing, I learn the most mm -hmm. if I do it and, and doing stuff, practice, right? Um, you're going to make mistakes constantly, but that's why you practice. So you don't, so you make less and less mistakes as you go until you start doing stuff extremely efficiently and knowing that something's not going to work before you even have to set that up. Yep. That's the wisdom. And, and that's it, across the board, right? Right. So you're not... Uh, a, a mad scientist rushing because what I hear in that is innocent curiosity. So you can be completely open and just let your own discovery happen at its own pace. Yeah. So the word that comes to mind that I know you're very familiar with is surrender. Big time. Right. And it's like surrender, surrendering to the moment does not mean giving up. No. It's accepting, yeah. it's acceptance what is happening. And yeah. I think so many times we place our own perceived adversity on ourselves when we're trying to accomplish right. certain tasks, right. whether it's a deadline right. or expectations of how it's supposed to be, rather than just having a vision of what we hope it to become and then working diligently through it. And then you can, you know, allow the end product to emerge from your flow-like states because you're open-minded, because you have surrendered to right. what is happening right. and then acceptance. And then that becomes fun. That is play. So you can play and work at the same time yes. if we just understand, like, let's not create our own adversities, our own <laughs> yeah, rapids right. in the right. river. Like, right. just let right. it go, right. surrender to it, yep. and, and let yep. it happen. Yep. And I think sometimes as leaders, we need to be cognizant of that. Yep. Are we putting boulders 
in the stream creating rapids for our employees and the people we work with. Right. Sometimes it's important to do that. Yeah. You know, to create a yeah. little churn. Yeah. But if we have too much churn, it's it's disrupting flow. Yeah. Um, and really, it's all yeah. expectations. Yeah. Yeah, boy, have expectations gotten me in uh, uh, dis- you know, discomfort. Um, more, and it's been more expectations of other people than that has gotten me discomfortable. And it's like I almost will feel internally, oh, like that person let me down. But that person had nothing to do with letting me down. It was all my internalization of this is what I expected of that person. You know, whether it was a job, doesn't matter what it is, a relationship, doesn't matter what it is. It's like, no, what did I expect? Did I communicate it clearly? Were we on the same page? And a lot of the times I didn't communicate that. I just expected it and assumed that they knew. It's like, whoa, found out a lot of people are not mind readers, right? (laughs) It's like, how are they supposed to know? Because when it's happened to me and they were like, well, you know, we kind of didn't want that. We expected something different. I'm like, well... Okay, I wasn't told that, so how am I supposed to know that? And then, I, and then that gives me that perspective of, oh my gosh, I do that to people, mm-hmm. and that's when you, and that's like, that's like the magic, you know, or whatever you want to call it, the magic moment, the God shot, whatever, the realization, the being aware of. How does that, if I flip the tables, work? Have I done that? Yeah, and it's like, oh my gosh, I've done it a lot. We do it all the time because yeah. like life happens fast, yeah. right? And sometimes the expectations are thought to be have been communicated, right? But what is said and what is heard is completely different. Oh, I can't believe what right? you, like that. What you said is so true. It's like, well, I told you. Well, that's not what that person that's heard. Heard, right? And it doesn't matter what you right. told them. All that matters is what is heard. Because right. the problem is there's a disconnect in the expectation, right. and the demonstrated behavior didn't match that. And so, right. if anyone's listening, I highly encourage you to look up. Um, there's, I think, three people listening. See, uh, three people. Good. <laughs> well, if you're one of those three, listen to we're, John we're O'Grady's. Listen to John O'Grady's cultivating trust, because that's a big part of our Soldier Society Lines program, and he has one formula on how to do that because that's what we're talking about trust right. and communication is so critical and in my book there the everyday coach yeah. you know harnessing the magic of influence so much of it is how we communicate and communicating expectations so that it's heard and mutually understood and it's like you we all have to commit to this on the daily moment to moment right. because you know, just because I wrote that book does not mean that like I'm an expert in any of this. Right. Like right. I, I'm practicing it, and I f it up all the time right. too. Right. Uh, but I'll tell you this: I, I think about it all the time. Is is what I'm saying received to my fullest intention? Because really, all communication right. is some sort of input what I'm receiving and some kind of output what I'm giving out. Right. And the the end in mind of input is to feel the full intent of the communicator. Hmm. The output, right? The end of mind for the output is to convey the precise intent that I'm trying to communicate. And so if both the the receiver and the deliverer can commit to understanding, and and when I mean commit, like sell out, commit to that, we have a much better shot of fully understanding each other. Right. Boy, is that difficult. Yeah. What was the name of that book? 
Not your book, the the trust book. Oh uh, well, he doesn't have a book. He oh. has a program, so you just go oh, to the okay. site. It's um, Grady. It's a John O'Grady. John O'Grady leadership. Uh, if you just go uh, to his, just Google John O'Grady Leadership Academy. Like it'll show up. Out, yeah. But he does this thing, cultivating trust, and he has a whole program for right. this. And he's a retired colonel in the army. Right, right. He's had you know, great a success. VP and, upper right. executive level at Raytheon now, and he's right. just a tremendous leader and coach. So. He's a company, yeah. <laughs> it's, well, it's great to <laughs> listen to guys good, right? like yeah. that. You know, I agree. Just, I like, agree. And and you know your book. Um, so before we focus on your book a little, um, I've kind of seen this happen with you. Um, you know, we had first met a, almost literally twelve months ago, almost to the week. And then shortly after that, we did uh, a sit down and we talked. But COVID had become um, kind of mainstream as far as awareness and, you know, what people knew in the country, what the government knew, you know, what we didn't know, I think was more is what we didn't know that doubt and the unknown of how deadly is it or how deadly isn't it or, or what is it and all this stuff. Now that there's a year later, um, you know, we know more. We still don't know everything, but we know a lot more. But here's where I'm going with this. I watched it in you. I watched it happen. Um, what did you do to improvise with soldiers to sidelines? Because your biggest stuff was to raise money for the nonprofit was um, events, mm -hmm. which means people, which means a lot of people together close, which was like a big no, no. Right. It was like, if I go public speaking, it's like, I can't speak. Now to people in auditoriums or, or gymnasiums or high schools or theaters or it doesn't matter what it is because they were just all being postponed or canceled for a year or whatever the case may be. I know because we've talked about it. Um, share with me what you did to improvise that. I don't want to say adversity, but that adversity of that kind of speed bump of, okay, now I can't really do this, which is what we've been doing, which has been successful. What did you do? And I'm sure that you sat down and literally thought about it. And I'm sure you brainstormed with it with people uh, in your organization or, or your wife or whoever and been like, okay, what can I do to make this work? What create, and it really is creativity. It's like, what can I do? What tools can I use? Whether it's Zoom software, it doesn't matter what it is. What can I do to still continue this, carry this message? Um, of what the organization's about and still be effective um, in this time that is kind of like, you know, once in a lifetime thing happening in the country. Yeah. Um, because I think the story, to me, it's like knowing you, I expect that from you. I'm like, well, of course he did it. I know him. I don't know. And I know how he is. But majority of the people don't think this way. Well, the first thing we did, and I had a, a phone conversation with John O'Grady, who mm -hmm. I was just talking about, who, who was one of our uh, board of directors. And we looked at it, and the very first thing we did was accept that this is happening. We did not resist right. the numbers. This has turned out to be an extremely contagious virus. Mm -hmm. And at the time, we didn't know much about it. Right. But based on the contagion numbers, to look at it objectively, and we saw this is not good. Right, and so right. before we started to get into these lockdowns, we saw that lockdown was inevitable, right? Only because there was no, we didn't know anything about the virus. So right. first thing, accept that this is happening. Do not resist it. 
And look, if the world comes back on and this just happens to be like a, a, a little fluke, right. great, awesome. we're all good, yeah. right? Um, so not only was our company based on raising money through live events, the entire program, our educational services to develop our service members and veterans to become coaches was all live events right. too. So effectively, the entire business was wiped out. Right. Like cannot right. operate as we did. The format of how you guys were doing it. Couldn't do it. Right. right. So, okay, accept that this is happening. And then now we can start to think strategically. And the first step in thinking strategically was really reassessing what is it that we're doing really? Why are we doing what we're doing really? Mm -hmm. And usually the first thing you come up with is not that. Right. And it just takes time to really peel the onion back right. and figure out what is it that we're doing. And then take inventory of our assets. Like, yeah. what are those assets? Yeah. And really, when we, we look at what Soldier to Sidelines does, right, we're providing renewed sense of purpose to service members and veterans by, develop them, by develop, developing them into character-based sports coaches and connecting them with their communities, right? So it's development, purpose, connection. Right. Okay, fine, COVID happened. We don't have to get rid of these three things. Right. So what are my assets? Well, our assets at Soldiers to Sidelines is our network. We just, thank goodness we have good reputations and we've done mm -hmm. right by people mm -hmm. um, for a long time yeah. and people tend to trust us, right? right. And so we have, we just know a, a bunch of coaches in all different sports at every different level throughout the country right. and they believe in our mission. Right. We also have a, like a very emotional and zealous group of soldier coaches who really want to get better and impact their, their communities. Right. So we have an audience. Okay, well, connection. We weren't able to connect in person anymore, but man, this is, we're, we're, this is 2020 and now 2021. Right. There's different ways to do this, right. right? So we have an internet, which is about connecting. All right, so the whole thing was everybody put their platforms online. I was like, so we, we will do the same thing. Right. Because sports have started to shut down and people weren't hiring more coaches, this was the opportunity to really develop and we can connect online right. and do this and we can leverage our network right. to provide these educational um, moments. And it's an opportunity for all the coaches throughout the NCAA and the NFL and uh, NBA, etc., to show their support and provide this purpose for our transitioning service members and veterans. So it was perfect. So what we did was we just like, okay, um, coaches, let's talk about something about your sport or leadership or whatever and teach our soldier coaches. Right. So we wound up doing 122 live instructional webinars. <laughs> 122. And how we, many did you do before COVID? Zero. Right. So we went from zero to this. And then we had to learn how to do it. Right. That's the other thing. Right. right. So, <laughs> a lot of movies. A lot parts. of that. Right. So there was that. And then, you know, this book was starting to get into production. Right. So I was like, all right, got to finish that. So we, then we launched a, a podcast as well called Harrison Bernstein's right. Everyday Coach, right. yeah. um, which, which supports the curriculum, which supports sure. the book, which all of this yeah. supports Soldiers to Sidelines. And then we were like, all right, so now we don't have to spend maybe as much money 
on the dogs. Correct. <laughs> we don't have to spend as quite as much money on hotels and the facilities to right. deliver these awe-inspiring live us. events. Yeah. So let's try to do this online yeah. learning. Colleges have been doing it for the past yeah. 10 years, 20 years well, now. University of Phoenix, right? They Correct. were just online. That's all they were. It was an online. Well, no, they did have a campus, but they were mostly online te uh, teaching. Right. So we're going to try to create this connection between our new soldier coaches. Right. And now this is an opportunity also for us to expand our reach. So in our first football coaching certification seminar, and this has been true since, we'll have service members deployed in Germany, Okinawa, uh, the Middle East, tuning in, waking up at two in the morning to so go through it. these seminars. Right. And it, we found ways to connect, you know, just using right. all these different technologies. Right. And it, it was awesome. really profound how we were able to do it. And then what happened is we created all this media. Mm -hmm. So now if you're, um, if you're a company that uh, wants to support the military and the development of service members becoming coaches in their community, we have this, this stuff that you can sponsor. Like you can sponsor right. the, the, or scholarship a soldier coach, but right. now you can also have your brand associated with that across all of the media right. content we produce. Which is a great thing to be associated with the brand that you have because it's a very respected brand. Yeah, exactly. And you're telling the story. So in fact, we got better this year right. and figured out a better business model to serve more soldier coaches and provide them more opportunities right. Because and just, when it does go back to somewhat normalcy, as, talk, as far as the country goes, now you have in addition to that you have the live events. Exactly. Right. Right. So the the word that kept screaming that I kept hearing, which I already knew because we've talked so much about this, is um, you ended up creating it as an opportunity mm -hmm. where many people. I know, uh, and, and there's been times in my life I've been guilty of it, um, don't look at it as an opportunity, they look at it as an um, inconvenience. And then they do nothing about it to, to improvise. Well, because you get back to adversity and inconvenience. What's inconvenience? <laughs> right. It's because that's what you expected, that didn't happen. Right. So the reality is, everything's an opportunity. Yes. Every yeah. single moment, yeah. all over the place. Yeah. You just have to look at it like that. And the only way you can open up your eyes to the opportunity, to see the opportunity, is to first accept yeah. exactly what is happening right now. Yeah. So once you just let go of your expectations, say, all right, see you later, funding. <laughs> Let's shut it down or put it on pause. <laughs> <laughs> or like, we'll figure out a different way. Now you can start to look up and, like, and then ask the questions that you did when in that 12-hour uh, experiment and trying to set up the shoot is, how can I make this better? What happens if I do this? And then you can start to see opportunity, right. ask the right questions, right. and you know, solve trial by error. Because right. the other reality is, who cares if you, if you make a mistake or you mess up? It's just going to give you more information to do something different. Right. Once you start attaching the expectations of like, I must be a failure because I messed this up this time, well, then that's what it is. Right. You know, you're absolutely right. I get that right. shit out of here. I, agree. I yeah. totally agree. I absolutely agree. I, and, and it's, you know, the fact, like that word opportunity and how we look at things. And it's like, it's kind of like almost like saying, you know, you have a task or it doesn't matter what it is. 
it's like I have to do this or I get to do this. Yeah. Right. It like what a difference in perspective on approaching something. And I'm like, I get to wake up on a Saturday and I get to, um, you know, for me, you know, I mean, sobriety for me is number one. So because because really for me and I, and I say it literally and I mean it because without that in my life, nothing else matters. Like literally nothing else matters because I'm incapable of functioning if, if I'm, you know, drinking or drugging. So, but the opportunities I get throughout the day become exciting because I'll get to do a podcast. I'll get to, I'll get to do a podcast, have a podcast guest. I'll get to be a guest on a podcast. I get to do all these things. I'm, so I, I'm kind of like, I feel fortunate, right? I, I'm lucky mm-hmm. and I'm not bored. Yeah. Right. Cause I'm constantly doing different things. And then I'm like, well, you know, I, you know, I, one of the things for me for COVID with, with the COVID, uh, happening is, uh, the podcast has been on the back burner for me. My own podcast has been on the back burner for me for two years. And, and it was a, like a serious back burner thing. It was like edging itself up the front burner even before COVID. But when COVID happened, it was, I was like, well, you know, Honestly, I was thinking a couple of weeks, maybe a month, and everything's back to normal because we just didn't know. Um, but then after a month or two went by, and I was like, okay, it's time to start improvising on and, and just exploring some different avenues, or maybe start like like one of the things. And and I love putting pencil to the paper. Uh, is maybe start doing some online tutorials. Um, and and you don't have to be a know it all. You don't have to be perfect. You can do it. Hey, look, this is the way I do it. This is the way it works for me. And there's a hundred different ways to do the same thing, but this is the way I do it. Because I found out through my own experience that I follow people that I relate to and that I like and that don't have a nasally voice or, or you know, just all these little minutia things. But it's like you just start to gravitate towards somebody or something. Um, and for me, whether it was, hey, maybe I should start putting out some online tutorials, put a bunch of free ones out. Yeah. And then, and if, and if I, and if I think that there's, you know, that people see value in them, then I'll put some more in depth ones out and, you know, make it a monetary thing, like for certain ones. But, you know, it's like, uh, so much was freely given to me as far as information goes and teaching of photography, because I never went to school for it or anything by a couple great photographers, especially uh, one being Paul Marco, who's here local, and the other one being Joel Grimes, who's here also locally. But uh, and, and Jack Resnicki, and there's a few other guys. But th- those guys are like tier, like tier one, like national and international photographers and teachers uh, of photography. And it's not just photography, but it's a whole creative process. I mean. There's so much to the photography, like the genres and there's so much to it. There's just, are you, you know, I always used to joke, I don't do it anymore, but, um, when somebody, when you get into small talk with another photographer or somebody that you don't even know, but then you find out they're a photographer and you kind of say, well, what, you know, well, like, what do you like to shoot? What kind of is your, is your gig? Is it cars? Is it animals? Is it weddings? Is it portraits? Is it, what is it? And, you know, when people would say, um, oh, I only shoot natural light and, I, you know, and I only shoot like landscapes and stuff. And I, <laughs> my first thing that come to mind is my own experience 
And when I would use that answer, it was because I didn't know how to use strobes and I didn't know how to light in studio. So that's why I was a natural lighter. But that was my experience for me. But, you know, as time has gone by, yeah, there are people who just shoot natural light because it is the most beautiful light. And it's not easy. And I used to think, oh, so, I mean, anybody can pick up a camera, just, you know, flip on, do it. It's not easy. Because, because it changes by the second. Exactly. <laughs> literally. Plus, you know, you change a setting, you change an angle. All, like, every, like, literally every detail matters. No different than in football. No different than in what you're teaching. Like, every detail matters. And I always refer to it as the spokes in a wheel. It's like every one matters. And if one or two you don't do, it, the wheel doesn't crumble, but it's not as strong. But... What it really is, and I love this example because it's a wonderful uh, metaphor for life, and it's an exercise in perspective. Mm-hmm. The light's yeah. always changing. Yeah. The angle's always yeah. changing. So what is happening right now, really? And back to the word surrender and acceptance. Yeah. It's, it's like if you surrender to the light and to the moment, I, I'm not a photographer, but I believe that photo will emerge. Right. It does, and, and, it, and, it, and I've... And there's another thing that happened with this whole process. Obviously, you know, the standard way of bringing in or monetizing the photography part of my life um, really kind of hit a, like a block because you're interacting with people. Well, whether I'm concerned or whether they're, they're concerned about the contagion of the whole thing, it basically took business down about 80%. Okay. So it's like, again, my head says, okay, what are you going to do about it? Right. How are you going to adjust until things get back to some normalcy? So I was like, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to start shooting some other stuff, maybe some stock photography because I can shoot still images. I can shoot landscapes, you know, like, I mean, how many sunsets can you shoot? Right. (laughs) Everybody shoots them and it's like, it's like, okay, well, let me try to figure out a different way to shoot it. And maybe instead of looking at the sunset, maybe I do a 180 and turn away and shoot the other way, right? It's like a lot of people don't think of that. Although that's, a lot of photographers will be like, well, of course, but most of them won't say of course. And until one of those two guys I mentioned earlier said that to me, they said, if you don't see the picture, and it doesn't have to be a sunset, if you don't see the picture with your naked eye on what you want to capture, stop, do a 180, look the other way and see the picture. And and you know what? I'd say 80% of the time they're right on because you're like, oh, I would have missed it. I would have missed it if I didn't turn around. And it's like, that's exactly, or you just see something that you weren't even thinking of shooting that you see that is just fascinating or just the way the light's hitting it, or it doesn't even have to be light. It could be the composition of the people in the picture and whether it's street photography, it doesn't matter what it is. So, and you talk about never getting bored photography. Oh my gosh. I mean, there's genres and the potentials. And I mean, there's, you could be, there's there's some Instagram sites I stumble upon that will be photographers that only shoot with mobile devices like smartphones and these, some of these phones have phenomenal cameras on them um, and the, you look at their work and you're like oh my god that came from a smartphone like so that there alone tells you yes the tools are important the physical tool 
but it's what's in between here and in, in your heart and kind of like how you grew up, all those influencers of your life and how you see the world, all those things are being seen by this person this way. And, you know, it's like when you're scrolling down Instagram and the picture I want is the one to take is the one that goes, oh, stop, go back up. That one caught my attention, right? Yeah. And it's like, why did it catch my attention? And it could be any genre. It could be a ballerina at a big ballet show. It could be anything. It could be a, it could be a still image of a piano. It's just like, why did that like affect me? So it, so it's like you'll never get bored in life doing that because yeah. the potential, like you said, are every second everything is changing. Everything, and that's on the external. <laughs> then think about all the brains. And minds that are interpreting that are watching it right so again the value of the art then is is the quality of the art happening on the wall or is it happening in the mind of the person viewing it right yes because there's been so many times I shouldn't say so many times because there's been less than 10 that I've gone to a uh, art museum not a show an art museum and because I've had the opportunity, if I've been in a certain city that's had like, that has a big one or a museum, I'll be like, I want to check it out. It's creativity. It's art. It's, 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 I appreciate it. And sometimes I'd look at stuff and obviously some stuff is very, like you just get it's a style and, but you can tell it's a person or it's a building or a, a, a cityscape or whatever. But sometimes, you know, the abstract stuff, right? It's like, <laughs> I just don't get it. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's okay. Cause I don't get it. But there's a lot of people that get it. Exactly. And it affects them totally differently. And that's when I realized, that's when I started to realize it's like, just because I don't get it and it doesn't impact me, it doesn't mean it doesn't impact thousands of, or tens of thousands of others. And, and then you, you know, you'll see these sales online or these auctions, these big auctions where a painting went for like $3 million that was painted by, you know, Andy Warhol or whoever, whatever. And I'm like, that went for that amount what am i doing wrong right but it's like no it's not that you're doing anything wrong it's just there's so many factors involved of value um who the person was that did it is part of it not all of it but part of it is the person that are alive is part of it when you start to think how does that art affect that person buying it all of these things you know matter the demand or the rarity of it or or whatever the case may be um, same with, you know, books and people that write books that, that you know, um, who was the guy, uh, uh, that wrote the book when he, uh, and journaled his whole thing crossing the country. Um, I forget very famous, uh, Krakauer? no, um, oh, I forget his name. Forrest Gump. No, <laughs> although, I, although at times I feel like I lived the Forrest Gump life. <laughs> um, but regardless, uh, people will know who I'm talking about um, that read. Uh, but his like manuscript and everything was like sold for a lot of money. And it, all he was doing was literally journaling. And it was a scroll. It was on a scroll. And it wasn't like 500 years ago. It was like, I want to say less than 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was in the U.S. And a, uh, a friend of mine ended up buying it because he was a big fan of his uh, of his writings and I, and I you know I thought it was like 
wow, that's a lot of money to spend on that. But how cool is it to have the original manuscript? Like, that is so cool, right? And for, for me to think something well, like that. Well, think about right? this. What is the relationship between cost, dollars paid, and value? Yeah. What, it does, what it brings to you. Like, yeah, the value. You're like, right. The value. So, like, so that, that yeah. art that sold for $3 million, does it have a value of $3 million? Right. Or did it just sell for $3 million? Right. And are they intertwined are they separate and it reminds me of this wonderful quote by zig ziglar the famous um sales consultant who Mm -hmm. wrote all those books and he said this which is so true if price is an issue the value hasn't been conveyed yeah and so somehow the artist is conveying the value and a buyer decides i will pay this much money for it right right and that also, that money that that person paid $3 million to a trillionaire isn't very right, much. Right. $3 million to me, <laughs> I'm not buying art with $3 million, I'll tell you that much. I'll buy a, I'll buy a, I'll buy a, <laughs> buy a, buy a print of it. <laughs> yeah. Like no, not for $3 million. That, no, no. It's cash in the bank, right. you know. So that, that's right. a, a lot, right. a lot, a lot of money right. to me, right? So the price is also relative, right. but the value you know, essentially isn't, right? It's how much were you willing to sacrifice to get it? So the $3 million spent on that piece of art to the trillionaire doesn't really have as much value as it does for me if I like absolutely connect and adore that piece of art. Like my mother who passed this year is, you know, she's an amazing artist and was an art teacher her whole life and we have her art hanging on our wall and it's absolutely priceless. Yeah, it literally is priceless. Like there's, uh, will not, cannot sell it. Right. right, you know, it's right. just right. It, it, the value. Yeah, there's stuff of my mom's, and you know, she passed away three and a half years ago. There's stuff of my mom's that, you know, carries so much value, and they're like some certain small things, and I'll have one or two of them out, like on a bookshelf or something, and I'll just keep the rest of them, you know, kind of in a secure little, you know, tucked away in a box or something, and I know that they're there, but it's like every time I see those things. Because they're always, you know, I like I'll walk by them or something. It makes me think of mom, right? So it's like, uh, it's 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 an, you know, when you really break it down, it's an object that was made in, at some company that's something. But you know what? My mom had that thing for forty years, and that's what matters to me. Right. So you're either buying the utility of the object, like right. does it serve a function, right, or the story behind it, right. Sometimes it's both. Right. But that's it. And so right. if you're a very good storyteller right. about whatever object it is, <laughs> right. the pet rock. Right, right. You right. know, you right. can you can sell a lot and yeah. you get people to see, yeah. to see the value yeah. in it and then yeah. create an action, which is hand over dollars for yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that uh, that I see people spend money on that, you know, I'm like, that's a waste of money. But then I, the next thought in my head is, well, it ain't your money, so they can spend it however they want it. If right. they want to burn it, they can burn it. The other thing is, I don't know what kind of sentimental or what kind of value that brings to that person. You know, mm-hmm. how do I know? Like, so it's, but that's just being human, transparent, and honest. It's like anybody that says they don't judge is, I think, lying to themselves. I mean, everybody judges everybody at some capacity or, or you know, they'll judge somebody walking by like, oh, I don't like their coat or, or whatever the case may be. It could be, you know, minutiae like that. But 
people will judge people's behaviors and all that stuff. And, um, but I always will almost immediately, it's naturally become, I flip it back on myself. Why does that bother me about that person? Because it's something about me that that person's doing that I don't like about me. 100%. And it's like, you know, it's, you can't do that unless you have a clear, you know, clear head physically, a clear head, and, and unless you're open-minded enough to, to look at yourself. Yeah. It's like perfectionists. Yeah. You know, perfectionists hate when other people make errors because <laughs> they hate when they make errors. <laughs> I'm glad you and I are not like that. Well, <laughs> or that I, shit pisses me off. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But, but yeah, like, but it's just... The reaction that was different, right? And yeah. The, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, I know, I mean, oh man, I just wish, right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that sometimes. And one of the things I've learned um, uh, over, over time and more in the latter part of my life is the reaction of the emotional reaction mm-hmm. and how the emotional reaction is, is not in your favor. If you react emotionally, like, like, you know, immediately like knee jerk reaction of, you know, jumping all over somebody or, or whatever. It's like, that hasn't really worked for me. Like it hasn't worked to my, to, to my, it, it's brought me more pain and, and, you know, conflict than it's brought me. Okay. You don't have to like, I don't have to like it. I can think it through. I can talk it through. People will say, you know, count to 10 in your head or take a breath or do whatever, walk away for a few minutes. I'll process stuff or like I'll let stuff sit if it bothers me that much for 24 hours before I relook at it. Sometimes it'd be an email, mm-hmm. right? Because it's like, um, I'm emotionally pissed right now or I'm feeling pissed or whatever the case may be. Right now is not probably a good time to answer this email. <laughs> right. And that's a big thing that we talk about in this book, right? Is it's being in control yeah. and being able to downregulate or upregulate your emotional response right. to, uh, create a desired outcome so yeah i'm pissed off that's fine yeah accept you're it. allowed to be yeah. accept it but yeah. the outcome of the situation i want to be x okay how is the best way for me to get to this based on the current circumstance right. well now this emotional feeling that i'm having right now good bad and different mm-hmm. whatever is is fleeting and it's temporary so let me try to change the perspective the lighting the angle, et cetera, by just giving this a little bit time, right. a little bit of time, maybe reframe this. Right. Maybe the information I am aware of right now is incomplete. And if I just turn around like you do with right. your with your photography, right. I can get more information and see this a little bit more holistically right. and then make a calculated move right. to achieve the desired outcome. Yeah. And I think like with the riots that just happened in, in yeah, DC, DC etc. Yeah. Like sometimes I think if we could all just do that a little bit more, like yeah. what are we really trying right. to have happen? Right. Um, we can be more calculated and you know, not cause more harm right. than what a desired outcome is. It's, dis- it's disappointing in the human factor for me. Like when I, when I see stuff like that happen, it's like the disappointment doesn't come from what party you're backing or, or, or what the thing it's the disappointment of, um, are we that primal that we have to do that? It's like, you know what? There's places for that, like the football field, you know, but still to a degree that's not you stepping on, you know, I'm not going to say the player's name, but there's been players as 
well-documented caught on film after they hit somebody or they'll literally step on them with cleats, right? It's like, well, now you're kind of pushing it a little too far. I mean, just, you know, if you really want to knock them out, just knock them out playing the game. Um, and, and I've been guilty of doing stupid stuff like that, but it's, it's kind of like you start to learn and you, and hope, you know, you hope you evolve to become a better yeah. human being, but it's like, you know, climbing the walls of the Capitol, sitting in, you know, the chairs of, of people that were elected and it doesn't, and the conversation really doesn't matter who you're for or what you are against or, or all that, as far as that goes. But it's like, if you were to, if we were to take all those people and bring them in one by one and say, we have 30 seconds with each person and say, you know, why did you do what you did? Their first answer would probably be that generic, well, because I support this, you know, or whatever. And then I would say, okay, why did you really do it? Yeah. And I'll bet you the answer would be like, I don't know. Oh yeah. And what is the desired outcome? And is, this is the thing with destruction. Because you can't like undestroy something, right? right? So right. once you shoot the bullet, right. it's out. Right. It's gonna hit right. something, right? Right. Unless so, you're in the matrix, right? <laughs> Which we're not. Right. So it, it's cool, right? right. But um, but that's right. the, that's the, the truth, right? Like once you hit the right. detonation button, the, the bomb explodes. Yeah. You can't yeah. undo that. Yeah. So those types of reactions, you have to be certain that what happens from this detonation or pulling this trigger is exactly what you intend to do. Yeah. Um, sometimes there's 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 a, a, a rationale to do that, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, most of the time there's not, yeah. right? Because it's not undoable. Right. So some of these, like all the protests, regardless, destroying, destroying any property, like how does, what do I want to do and how does burning this McDonald's accomplish this? Like, that's just McDonald's like that, right? Well, don't you see that in the policy? Right. Or, or something, right? even still, it's like storming right. the Capitol, right? right? So, like, what I want to know from from that, from that those events that happened is, um, what was the plan, right? So, if they all breached the Capitol and then you get to the Senate floor now and what? you get in the room and we're all in there right. and all the senators and the House right. is in there, now what, what, do, what do we do? Right. It's so true. Like, okay, guys, we're here. Uh, That's when I used to chase people that cut me off. Right. Driving. I, and then, as five seconds into the, okay, I'm, I'm going to start following, I ask myself, okay, so what are you going to do when they stop? And, like, are you going to beat them up? What does yeah. that prove? Yeah. Or are you going to get your butt beat? <laughs> what does that prove, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like, what, what, what am I doing? What am I doing? Right. And then you get there. And then what's going to happen, unfortunately, you know, I mean, it's just the, the consequences. Like right. some of those folks that did that are going to, you know, face some serious jail time. Right. And I just don't know if that was it's, fully right. calculated. If it was and that right, was their right, intention, right. oh, yeah. you know, I'm not condoning it, right. but I'm like, all right, maybe you thought that through. But I just, yeah. I, I, I sometimes wonder. So we'll just take all this stuff yeah. that's happening in politics, but just more to like the individual level. Right. Right. What are we trying to do really? And before we take an action that it cannot be undone, right. like, is this really what I'm trying to do? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a question you, somebody has to look in the mirror and ask themselves. Yeah. And see, the same thing happens. There's a way more innocuous things that we have to pay attention to because Coach Margraf, my college mm-hmm. coach, he, 
you know, he took this from somebody, but because he said it to me, it sticks with me. If you say it three times, it's yours. Yeah, whatever. But it is, is, it's it's a Margraphism because he's the one that told it to me. That's how I discovered it. But he said, you know, there's two things you can never take back a spent arrow and a spoken word. Hmm. And once you say it, like this is being recorded, so it's out there for good. Right. Right. You, you tweet it. That's a written. Right. You can't get those words back. It's right. out there. Right. You pull the trigger, the right. bullet ain't coming back. Right. So now that we know this, can we use our brains as tools? Can we figure out how to have extreme control of ourselves yeah. so we can be intentional behind all of our words, all of our actions yeah. to make sure that we're achieving the desired result to the best of our ability? On the everyday level. And think about that. That's going to happen and we're going to be tested if you have kids that are under five years old yeah. and you're in a supermarket and they're having a temper tantrum right. and you still have to get the shopping done. Right. You have to right. somehow handle your child right. and respect everybody else in the store. Your little amygdala in your brain is firing, <laughs> right? Boy, I want to. Right. right. But you can't. You, you, what? Right. How are you going to behave? Right. Right. What is your reaction going to be to handle that moment? Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah. we talk about this a lot in the Everyday yeah. Coach because we are coaches every single day in every yeah. aspect of yeah. our life, whether we realize it or not. And if we can all commit to a lifetime of just getting better at this stuff, I feel like all of our relationships are going to be much better and maybe we'll burn a few less buildings and storm less capital. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's, and it's like, and you're, and you're right on with, if we all as individuals, doesn't matter what demographic you are, doesn't none of that matter. If we all just do our own part and our own part is not that hard to do. Yeah. In the, the way I see it, it's like, just do your own part. It's kind of like the old do the right thing. Just do the right thing. If you're going to blame somebody before you vocalize it and say those words, think about why you're blaming them and what are you blaming them because there's something that you're discomfortable with yourself in. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And that's why you want to point the finger at somebody. It's like, and I've been, you know, guilt in Green Bay pointing the finger at everybody, right? It's, it's not me that's failing. It's the media that's causing it and my employer and my coaches, everybody, my family, everybody, yeah. right? It couldn't be me. Um, and then, but if we all played our own part, looked at our own selves and just did, hey, we could do a moderate inventory. We don't have to do a deep down digging inventory, like really deep although it wouldn't hurt. Yeah, right? it would be good. <laughs> it would be good. Um, and just say, hey, um, instead of how can I, you know, like add crap into life or, or into the society, it's like, what can I, you know, put into life that helps people? Yeah, and that's how we evolve. Right. Right, so like, yeah, I was a knucklehead in, in college. Like, I, thank well, God I'm not yeah. the same person, right? You and me both. Right, yeah. so... And, and so we should allow us the, the, the freedom to evolve yes. if we think about it. And that's a great concept. That's happening right now in, you know, back to the NFL, we talk, or, or college coaching. Like right. all the coaches are getting fired, right? Guys right, are getting right. fired yeah, and rehired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot, that's a lot of finger pointing. Now, I understand that's a high stakes right. business where production matters 100%. Yeah. Yeah. But at some point, if you're one of those organizations where it's, been turnover, 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 turnover. At what point? You might want to look at yourself as an organization, right? Right, like who who's really on top? Right. And you know what? Jerry Jones 
admitted this this week on a radio show in the Dallas area, and it was beautiful. Whoa. Yeah, and then he was like, you know, I'm capable of changing. I'm realizing. He said something to the effect of like he's realizing I have to change certain things about me and the way that we do things to help get this organization right. to where it needs because right. you, you wouldn't say he's the biggest Dallas Cowboys fan on the oh, planet I agree. by far and is passionate and is extremely passionate about what he does and for him even at his tenure in life right now and all the success to, he's had yes and to and to say that publicly I think is really it's big huge. for him it makes me just really like that hope. guy more you know I, I, and yeah. I'm not a Cowboys fan I'm not like a fan of Even any of the teams I'm a right. football fan right. right so it's not like right. I dislike the Cowboys right. I just you know I'm a football fan right. and I'm a people fan right and when that was a big people moment yeah. for him yeah and uh hopefully that does change yeah. the, the trajectory for and the that will Dallas influence Cowboys. I think many people that will influence oh yeah for the better yeah because you can't because it's not about I want I think about this I, I put a post on LinkedIn about it like you know, people always say trust the process, right. but sometimes we have to trust the people who execute the process <laughs> right. enough time. Right. And if we haven't really thought about what we're trying to do as an organization and what is the culture that we are hoping to achieve right. and how is this person's actions going to um, manifest this culture, you, you got to give it time. Yeah. But the NFL's funky and so is Power 5 football because... Yeah. Fans really want to win right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, like yeah, at Michigan State, there was a. I think George always called it. There, he had, he was kind of given a five year plan. There are no five year plans anymore. Like you have yeah. to win it within two seasons. Like you have to be starting to win within two seasons, or you your job could be on the line. Yeah. Well, at places. least it has to be going in that direction, right, right? right? And so it goes back to expectations. There has to be some like significant changes happening yeah. with wins and losses, right? Like. I see coaches getting fired after two years. Yeah. It's, and it's like, well, does he even have a chance? Or, but I don't know what behind the scenes culture of, is he a cancer in that organization? Right. And then if that's the case, if you were the one doing the hiring, you have to look inward right. and say like, I have to change the way that right. we're bringing people into this organization right. to right the ship. Right. Um, you know, because I love the, the Bill Gates quote. Um, and he says, people underestimate People overestimate what they can accomplish in one year, but they underestimate what they can accomplish in 10 years. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Right? Because you're like, you think about, we're in, it's January right now. Right. It's all New Year's resolutions. Right. Oh, right. in 2021, right. I'm going to do X, Y, Z. I'm going to wake up. Right. I'm going to, you know, those, you right. have all these ambitions. And right. you're like, okay, 20% of that is possible. Right. But if we have a longer vision on this yeah. whole thing in 10 years you can do a oh, lot my gosh so like for five years for a college program or an nfl yeah. program if if everything is thought out intentionally and it's not reactionary you can i mean you can create a dynasty and you'll yeah. know you'll yeah. probably know right at that four or five year mark yeah. yeah and then that might be a time to reassess and then and then make Re a change refine it. yeah or change it or refine it refine on yeah. what's working and refine it to make it better yeah, and more efficient, but um, that's awesome. Uh, so, where can they get the book? Oh, so uh, the Everyday Coach Harnessing the Magic of Influence. Right now, it's on pre-order on our website, okay. uh, which is soldiers to sidelines dot org. Okay. Under resources, you'll see uh, the book. And the best part about this book, though, is one hundred percent of the profits support soldiers of sidelines really helping veterans and service members yeah. find a renewed sense of purpose by yeah. becoming a coach in their community so it really is 
I think it's a pretty cool book. You know, Mac Brown, head coach of North Carolina, yeah. wrote the forward, and it's yeah. it's really inspirational. And um, there's there's a bunch of wisdom in there because uh, it's it's not really just coming from me. It's right. a conversation like this with some right. of the best, Dialogue, uh, yeah. highest um, performing leaders yeah. in the military yeah. and in business and in the NFL and um, NCAA sports. Yeah. Like people just which reflect. is good because it's a it's a uh, variety of walks of life. Yeah. But the, there's a, such a core foundation of it, too. Well, what it is, like the, I talk about in the author's note, it's like, so just like imagine all, all these great friends who were leaders and successful in right. their own right, sitting around sitting a, a table, table right. with all sports memorabilia around. Right, right, right. And we're just, we're, we're sharing stories right. of, man, I had this thing about this thing that I went through, right. and this is how I handled it. Right. So everyone's sharing these yeah. stories yeah. on leadership. And then I get to distill it down right. at some of the key points. That's and I awesome. think there's a lot to learn. That's awesome. I've read probably half the book when you had sent it to me on the PDF before it was in final draft. And I was, yeah, I was like, I can't wait to get this in physical because I will definitely be getting a highlighter with it um, to highlight. There's certain things said in there that are that are directly impactful for me that I want to remember. And I'll, wipe, like I'll put it on the whiteboard and yeah. leave it there for a week to let it sink in and oh, then I'll okay. change it. Right. And then I'll change it to something else that I read yeah. that affects me because it's like, I need, why does it affect me? I don't know why, but I need to be thinking of that and focusing on that, you know, and I'll usually what I'll do is I'll whiteboard it or I'll put it on a piece of paper and just put it on, like, just take, put it at the bottom of my computer screen. And I'll, you know, it's not that I'm forced to look at it, but it's like, it's there. Yeah, and the way the book's written, there's like so many like bullet points yeah. and like pull quotes yeah. that are perfect for whiteboarding, just yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and it's it's gonna be it's available on Amazon for sure. Right. Uh, but it's on pre-order now for until um, January twentieth, and awesome. you know if you go to the site, it, more of the proceeds support soldiers to sidelines, right. uh, and less to Amazon. Right, right. That's awesome. Um, and I and I was I'm glad that one time you had the Facebook Live thing and you had the guy from Black Hawk Down. Oh, we, like, we had two. Oh, not the movie, the actual people that were in it. Well, like we've had two. Okay. So uh, our next pod, my next podcast guest is right. Kyle Lamb, who was in the streets of Mogadishu Incredible. at that time. He's one of the most famous, you know, uh, Rangers, and so he was in the in the streets. But then we had Matt Eversman. Who was in the helicopter right. that got That's the one I down. listened to or watched. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And their stories are his heroic. story, like the whole thing fascinates me. And, and and you I know that you know that stuff like that fascinates me. That's why you had messaged me and said, Hey, tonight, which was you know, month you know, months ago, um, you had said, This guy's gonna be on it if you wanna check it out. I know that you like stuff like this. So I did check it out. The the interesting thing is to me, and I think I shared this with you, but you'll probably a lot of people probably wouldn't think it would be the most interesting, but what caught really my attention was he was pretty selfless as Extremely. far as, right? Which is impressive, but then to me, I'm like, of course he's selfless. Look at the position he's in. You don't get there by being selfish. I mean, some do, but they don't last long. But the thing that amazed me, and it stuck with me to this day, because here I am talking about it, is when he sent that kid who was like 19, 20 years old and just got in the military, like has been in the military just a year or two. To, he's like, go down the street to get, I can't remember what it was to get, it was either munitions or a family or, or it was something. I can't remember the detail of it. And, and, and this is all during a firefight, right? 
And, and this is stuff I can only imagine because I've never been in one. And the kid was like, you know, yes, sir. And the kid went and did it and came back. Like he came back way fast, did it and came back way faster than he thought it could be done. And he's like, did you do it? Like, yeah. he's like, yeah, I got it done. It's like, they're, it's all taken care of and stuff. And he was like, what the hell? <laughs> and I was like, whoa. Like well, if he's impressed by that and it's like the kid was following instructions. He was doing his job. He was doing what he was told to do. He, he trusted his leader, right, on, on, on uh, direction. That, like, to me, impressed me about that kid. And I don't even know the kid's name, but that whole, like, story is incredible. He's incredible. But then the story tells about the kid and how impressed he was that the kid did what he did, executed it perfectly, and... His willingness to do it was like, not even like, it's not even a debate. It's like, yeah, okay, it's got to get done. That's what I'm going to do. Well, when you just survive a helicopter crash and everyone's shooting at you, there's not time Buy to a lottery debate. ticket. Just, <laughs> just do it. Right. <laughs> yeah, that impressed. I mean, that, and it stuck with me. It yeah. really stuck with me because it made me go, you know what? You can be really young and still do great, like phenomenal things, make the right decisions. And uh, like, I mean, that story impacted me. Well, I mean, he was trained. Right. He was trained, but there's yeah. a lot that are trained that don't execute, right? And, the, 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 and I'm not talking just military. I'm talking sports, oh, life, yeah. anything, right? True story. So, but um, it was awesome to have you on again as a guest. Uh, and I hope people go to the Amazon or to your website, soldiers2sidelines.org, uh, to pre-order the book. And... Um, We'll probably do this again in six to 12 months. And I feel like you and I could do a whole series of podcasts. There's so much to talk about. There is. And yeah, it, well, it, it goes back to that. Um, you know, we, we start at 10 o'clock and you blink your eyes and it's four o'clock. Yeah. Right? And that's not the case here right now because we both have commitments with other things. But it's like there are so many things that interest both of us and then you know there's so many things i learned from you that you probably have no idea that i'm picking up that i pick up on and i'm like god i never thought of thinking of something that you said and then i'll start implementing it in my life well that's the truth right and yeah. so we all have different brains i could never be in your brain right. and that's why that's a good thing you're lucky <laughs> Well, again, it's like, it's like, oh, it's great. a scary neighborhood, another leadership book, right? <laughs> no, you know, it's like no, another, leadership. No, yeah. but the idea is, you know, the reason there's so many of these books in Barnes and Noble right now is because it's all these different perspectives. Yeah. And so maybe it's a similar message, but the messenger is different. Right. And sometimes something will be said the same, but different that resonates with you more this time. And hopefully this book kind will like that linebacker. That that was one of your linebackers that you coached. And then you guys brought an external person in to explain it to them. And he was like, I wish my coaches would have told me that. <laughs> and you guys verbatim were telling them the same thing, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's like, it is. And what, there is a lot of truth and value to that. It's like, it's sometimes who is saying it. Yeah. Right? And, and, how, and how they relate to that person or the fact that, I mean, how many times in my own experience and, and people have experienced, if mom and dad tell you to do something, you get resistant sometimes or a All lot time. of times, All time. but you get the neighbor to pretty much say the same thing that, you know, is your friendly neighbor or somebody that yeah. you know, and you're like, willing to do it whatever dad, dad just the Tony told me right right I'm it's like right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> interesting <laughs> right.
thank you to Harrison Bernstein and for listening to One Man's Ethos, the Tony Mandridge podcast. For more information on Harrison, please visit soldierstosidelines.org. For information on One Man's Ethos, please visit onemansethos.com and follow us on social media under One Man's Ethos. Also follow Tony on Instagram at Tony Mandridge and on Twitter at Tony underscore Mandridge. And you can check out Tony's photographs at TonyMandridge.com. One Man's Ethos is produced by The Abstract Athlete. For more information on podcasts, events, and subscription boxes, please visit TheAbstractAthlete.com. And as always, follow us on social media under The Abstract Athlete. Please visit One Man's Ethos for upcoming podcast guests.